Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, Vinay Prasad, Zubin Demanya, welcome to this VPZD show. Vinay, we are the number five science podcast in the nation. Rightly what do you deserved. Think of that? Rightly deserved. You know, for a while we <laughs> shot up. We shot up to number two. I saw we were number two. We I were think, number for two a minute, for a minute. Basically, Neil deGrasse Tyson is sitting somewhere in an undershirt, sweating. He's just sweating balls right now. He's like these these kids. He knows they're, we're they're coming beating for me him. at my own game. He knows. Yeah, we're coming we're for coming him. For him. And, and and what I want to tell the public is like, listen, it's you guys who put us there by leaving reviews, subscribing on your favorite platform. If you're on iTunes, that's great. Just go to the podcast app and. Put however many stars you think our podcast is worth and worth and read a review, write a review. And that really bumps us up the chart. And it gets these this kind of alt-middle synthesis discussion out out there, which it really is not happening. Right? It's yeah, it's true. either, and we'll talk about this, but yeah, it's, it's really these conversations aren't happening. So the I'm middle excited, is gone. Bro. The middle is gone. And if you want to see the middle, uh, like, you know, hit that star button, leave a comment. That's what gets it out there. That's right, dude. We got to talk like YouTubers, bro. That's how we get famous. We have to we have to be like, bro, just smash that like button smash and hit the little bell. bell. Whatever that bell is. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that bell is, right. Whatever YouTube's algorithm believes the bell is because it's just a figment of YouTube's algorithmic imagination. Um, that, that actually, I think it's a good way to lead off. Like this podcast, the reason we're doing it is what we want to do is create, it's not even, it's not like when we talk about alt-middle, we're not talking about a, a middle centrist position. Because I think a lot of people will rightly criticize you for that. It's 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 a synthesis position. So what it's saying is, if you look at COVID, you have the thesis position, which has been, yeah, uh, masks work, lockdowns are helpful, vaccines are perfect and effective, um, and anybody who's against that is basically killing grandma. Right. And then you have the antithesis position, right? Which is, no, masks are overblown, vaccines are not as safe as you think, lockdowns don't work, and the harm is come from our response to the pandemic, not the pandemic itself. And anyone who thinks otherwise is an authoritarian trying to exert control over the population. Now, each of those positions, people stake it out, they shout at each other on social media, and they, they are branded as this position. But who's talking about the synthesis, the actual, <laughs> collusion of where is actually truth, which is probably a little bit of both, has some validity. But if you if you try to take a synthesis position, you're branded as antithesis almost instantly by the thesis side and by as thesis by the antithesis side. That's so you're really hated by everyone. That's really interesting. You yeah. know, so I think I, I agree with you. What we're trying to do is come in the middle. Sometimes we're all the way on one side or all the way on the other on some issue or the other, but sometimes we're in the middle and we're going where I think the evidence takes us and where our reasoning takes us. Uh, we're not committed to any platform position. And actually, I think you're right that actually being in this space sometimes 
uh, calling it uh, a ball, sometimes calling it a strike. Um, being in that space is very difficult because in order to have the thesis antithesis, the tribe has to whip people who come out of the flock. It has to herd the flock together. And so almost the most threatening person to the flock is the person who holds most of the views of one side, but a few of views of the other side. That's somebody who's, you know, really a threat to that group mentality. And, you know, so I think that's why, to some degree, uh, you know, we, we take our lashings on social media. Oh, that's a really good insight because in our tribalized kind of world where you're staking out a group identity based on these purported values, right. if it's exactly that. The most hated person is the person who holds most of the values. But then it's kind of like, you know, the, the yin, yin yang sort of diagram. You have the, the black curve and the white curve, but in each of those is the opposite polarity in a small amount. And that's what I think is actually truth is like, there's never anything that's pure one thing, pure another thing. And then if you actually look at the yin and the yang, there's a circle enclosing both. And that's absolute reality, which is just you know, everything is one thing. So it's kind of interesting. I, we've tribalized and we've lost sight of the the bigger picture of this. But anyway, so that you you have a list of awesome stuff for us to talk about let's that we haven't it. even pre-discussed. Let's, let's just hit me with it, brother. So here's what the listeners should be in, they're in for. You're in for Dr. Oz, Om, uh, Omicron, <laughs> travel rules, boosters, is Fauci science, Bangladesh. And uh, <laughs> let's go from there. Let's go from there. Let's start with, oh, let's so start good. with top of the hour because this is a news show. Uh, Zubin, I don't know if you, if you know this, this is primarily a, a news outlet that we're running here. Um, big news, Dr. Mehmet Oz, you know him well, Dr. Oz. Mr. Evidence, <laughs> Mr. Evidence-based medicine. <laughs> he's he's running he's running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. So, what do you say? He's running dude, as a Republican, dude. and he's here to describe his frustration with quote arrogant, close-minded people in charge end quote who shut schools and businesses down. What do you think, Doctor Oz, Republican oh, candidate for oh. Senate of Pennsylvania? This is so good. It's like I've been waiting my whole life for this to happen so I could take a shit on Dr. Oz. But but this is the thing. Now I'm in this alt middle where I actually am seeing some nuance here. So here, mm -hmm. here's the arc of Dr. Oz yes. as I see it. Yes. Back back in 2010 when I started Z-Dog Industries, right? Yes. I, I wanted to be the anti-Dr. Oz. I was the evidence-based, science-based. You know, I would sit and I would punch up, as we say in comedy, I would take a shit on Dr. Oz any chance I got. I made a rap video called Sucker MDs about Dr. Oz. Mm. I threw Deepak Chopra in there, the doctor, quote unquote, Dr. Phil and these other guys. And it was a lot of fun and developed a little tribal identity around being the skeptic and the guy that like stands up for science and this and that. Well, so Dr. Oz over the past decade plus, he has built this increasingly sly and clever brand mm. where yes, he's the mid, you know, the housewife guy that like America's doctor who will pitch, you know, Cambogia extract and green coffee extract and a bunch of pseudoscientific woo-woo. And then in the same, in the same breath, say something quite truly scientific and and powerfully well communicated. So he's kind of conflated all of this um stuff under one brand, but he's also very intentionally done some interesting things. So he did a three-hour interview that you can find on YouTube with uh, Jordan Peterson. Now, why would he interview Jordan Peterson? This was a couple of years back. Why would you do that? Well, he has been angling clearly for a, a political position Thanks. for some time. And he's kind of staked out that he's conservative in the sense that, you know, what, whatever that means. And he's uh, been pushing this. And I think his goal is to become president. And I've heard this from people that know more about him than they should know. And so 
imagine this, this, this would have been unprecedented to even talk about ugh, five years ago and then Trump. And now it's like, oh yeah, anybody could be president. <laughs> like any yeah, reality I think, TV I think star. It's all, it's all an open business now. Okay. Go on. So, so you're getting close to the heart of it. So what are your thoughts on the yeah. candidacy? What do you think about him running? So this is where it's interesting. So now he is staking out the, this kind of not antithesis claim, but he's claiming a synthesis position where he's saying, hey, listen, we, we, we got to stop like shutting down business and all that. There's more nuance to this thing than just black and white. And what's interesting is like, I don't disagree with some of that. He's taking a little more hard line position on that. But what's fascinating is the response already from the left. So already the, the screeching and the howling on the left, which I enjoy watching because, you know, as somebody with a lot of left-leaning sympathy, I, and right-leaning sympathy and libertarian-leaning sympathy, I just love watching the tribe get riled up. And mm. so what they're saying is, here's a guy who's anti-science, who's all pseudoscience, who's of course joining the Republicans who are the most anti-scientific pack of Marjorie, whatever her name is, and right. you know everything from creationism to vaccine denial to so on. And of course he's there and he's a disgrace. And I'm like, listen, he's a disgrace for other reasons. Like actually his positions on this have been not, so, and one of the positions they attacked was he early on in the pandemic said, hey, you know what? Let's say if uh, closing schools costs two to 3% mortality, like change, yes. like it's still not worth closing schools. And I'm yes. like, he I'm with Oz on this. Yes. And he apologized <laughs> yeah. for that, but um, he- He, he know, shouldn't he, have. He, well, he, he didn't articulate it correctly, but what I think he was trying to say was there are huge health benefits to keeping schools open and economic benefits and political benefits, and that may even offset some very marginal increase in SARS-CoV-2 spread. He didn't articulate it right, but I think he was on to something there. And I guess I share most of your analysis. Here's my two cents on Oz. Um, I followed him, of course, um, since you know probably around the time you started to know about him because uh, you know he's on Oprah, and so you, you hear him. Um, I think one thing we have to acknowledge is that before he went on Oprah, I mean, this is a very serious academic surgeon. Uh, yes, he's, yes. He, he's not, I mean, people can say whatever you want about what he's done in the last decade. Before that, he's a, he's a real player. I mean, he is a peer-reviewed, published, uh, patent-holding, uh, cardiothoracic surgeon at Columbia University's professor of medicine. I mean, he is, uh, no doubt about it, I think he's a smart guy. And then he started doing these, uh, you know, going on this uh, Oprah show and, uh, you know, you have to act the way you act when you go on that show, which I think is, you know, odd. Um, and and then I think <laughs> the next time he crossed my radar was when people like you, people like Ben Mazur, people like Adam Sifu talked about why he drives them crazy because he was promoting, you know, things that clearly don't work, supplements and what, what are all those sorts of low probability things he unproven hopeless, doomed, in fact, contradicted things he likes to promote. Um, why does that bother all of us? I guess I would say I agree with you. It bothers me too. I don't believe in any of that stuff. Um, I think that human beings have always tried to do things to make ourselves healthier. And the reality is most of what we do to make ourselves healthier simply doesn't make us healthier. It just makes someone else richer. Uh, it's a sucker's game, you know, buying some supplement or some herb. I didn't even know what that thing was you said, that tea, but I'm pretty confident that it, it lacks robust evidence that it will improve any real health outcome. Why? Because doing those kinds of studies is very difficult and, uh, and, and arduous. And if it had been successful, I would have heard about it because it will be big news. So I'm pretty sure he is doing a lot of that promotion. Why does he do that? I think 
perhaps to some degree to prey upon the audience, to prey upon their sensibilities and their wallets. Uh, perhaps to some degree he's getting rich from it, but perhaps to some degree he has sort of a kind of a split mind of some sort. You know, on one side of his mind, he's a rigorous scientist. On the other side of his mind, he is someone who can succumb to that kind of thinking. Um, but after a while, after that 2014 Senate hearing where they raked him over the coals, even I got sick of him, and I didn't hear much about him, to be honest with you. I haven't heard much about him in the last few years, um, until he started doing some of these appearances uh, around the pandemic. I, I, I thought some of his points were poorly articulated, but I didn't think he was totally wrong. As you talk about school closure, he probably was close to being on the mark, um, even though he didn't formulate it in a way that made sense and it invited criticism. Now he's running. So here are my thoughts on him running. I think he's a formidable candidate. I think people will underestimate him, but he is a real candidate. Um, he may lock up the Republican primary, and if he does, he has a strong candidacy to win the general election. Of course, the pendulum in Pennsylvania, I believe it will swing to the right. It will swing to the Republicans. They will have the advantage in the general election. He's one of the few people entering the primary with massive name recognition. I think he is an articulate guy. He knows media. He knows how to play media. He knows how to talk on media. He's been in the media business a long time. He's got a lot of connections. I suspect he is a strong candidate. And if I had to bet, I bet he's going to pull it off. I bet he's going to actually win this thing if he doesn't uh, trip over his own feet. Oh. Um, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. That's the nature of politics. Um, mm. uh, you know. But, but the one thing I will say this, the platform he has decided to run on, I think he's actually quite clever. Because, yes, they're going to attack him for promoting pseudoscience, and, of course, I also will attack him for having done that. But the platform he's running on is that very elite people who could shield themselves from restrictions, it doesn't affect them that much, put restrictions on you that actually didn't make you much safer. And I think that's the sentiment among many people in that state. Uh, school closures is one example, but, you know, these very porous lockdowns, these very porous business closures – we don't know for sure. There's lack, we lack empirical data on what effect that's had on SARS-CoV-2 spread, but we certainly know it has an effect on the lives and livelihood of people, and people feel that. And uh, some of these places have been inundated with SARS-CoV-2 spread anyway, despite those efforts. And so people may view that as a futile thing. And so I think he's actually cleverly marketing himself. Um, so I won't be surprised if he pulls it out and wins. I, dude, so I think he's going to be a terrifyingly good candidate. And if, for those reasons that you mentioned, and I'll even double down and say it's the backfire effect of what we've been talking about, where you know you have all this pushing for vaccine mandates, for all these lockdowns, Omicron, which we're going to talk about, travel bans. People are fucking fed up. And they're going to look at a guy like Oz and go, here's a doctor who represents my feelings and who can articulate them. And I'm going to put him in office. And it wouldn't surprise me if he made it all the way to the presidency, just riding that wave of outrage, because, you know, he's not a radical. He's actually, he, he is incredibly smart, very shrewd. And by the way, these are not compliments. No, um, he's, are, he's very facts. shrewd. Yes. They're facts. He's very shrewd. He's he's extremely ambitious, and he he has shown that he does not have a particular moral compass beyond making a ton of money. And the next step is power. And I think for him, you'd ask like, well, why does he do this? It's clear because listen, I've been tempted by this stuff too. Like when you get a platform, you get these offers to do these crazy things for ridiculous amounts of money. And I have almost. I've almost wanted to die turning some of these things down because they're so lucrative. Yeah, and sure. you're just like, all I have to do is say this on the show or pitch this thing. It's so easy to do. 
And for him, he just embraced it because he's in this Hollywood setting where th that is, that's just the norm. You know, the, all these guys are like that. It, they, they get sucked into that milieu. You know, I talked to my friend, Dr. Mike, about this, our mutual friend, Dr. Mike, about this. He rolls in those same circles and he does sponsorships and things like that, but he's a pretty sincere, you know, intelligent, good guy. And he talks about a lot of these guys you know, off camera. And he's like, man, I'll tell you, I've seen them do stuff where you're just like, what? I'm not naming names, but yeah. it's just, it's, it is like that. So now here's a guy who's super ambitious, who wants power, who has money and wants more, and he will succeed because he's he knows the formula and he's absolutely capitalizing it. And I think, is that dangerous? Is that a good idea? I don't think it makes a difference. Every politician who makes it to those levels is is in that sort of camp to a large degree. There may be a few exceptions. No, I so think it's just more of the same. Yeah, you're, you're onto something in the sense that is he distinct from other politicians? I'm not so sure that that's the case. These are people who have maneuvered in different spaces to get the shot at the crown. And many of them are motivated by, I think, power and money. Some of them also rationalize that I think what they're doing is that they're doing the right thing. He's someone who I have always struggled with. You know, when you see many of these um, people selling you things that clearly don't work, um, I, I can know for sure that some of these people just simply do not understand what does it even mean to have evidence. Um, they just don't understand what's good evidence, what's bad evidence. And as such, I can imagine the person selling you the thing, they themselves have been swindled. You know, they don't even know what it is. Yeah. But he is too smart for that, I do think. I mean, I do think he's too smart for that. So why is he selling this stuff? I've read about him. I don't know this to be true, but I've read about him that there are people in his family who have always harbored sort of mystical yes. sentiments and his you know mysticism and these sorts of non-quantitative non-measurable ideas. I actually do think there is a space for non-quantitative non-measurable ideas. I yes. just think it has a very small space when it comes to selling you tablets that you take. I think that's a very yes. quanti quantifiable domain <laughs> in life. And so I do think he's wrong <laughs> to sell it, but I do think, you know, I don't think I fully understand um him in the sense that he's not a typical he's you know um I guess I'm not I'm not willing to say that he it's solely about the money I think there might be something else going on there but I do think he's very smart um in, in terms of he's too smart to not know that the things he's selling don't work I mean I'm sure he knows that uh, or he knows it's a low probability um but anyway he's he's probably going to walk uh, away with the senate seat I think he's he's articulate. I, I think so he's been on camera you all you, you know you know you and I both know that like the modern political environment, it's not an environment of ideas. It's an environment of name recognition and how people view you. And for better or worse, everyone knows this dude's name. Uh, you know, he entered, he, 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 I, I ask you to name someone else in that Republican primary. You can't because nobody knows who the yeah. fuck they are. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I think name recognition is a lot. As we've seen uh, with Donald Trump, you can easily parlay years of television to a high political office. Will he be president? I don't know about that. Because I think who knows where that the pendulum will be there. Um, you know, yeah. this this time he'll run for Senate, and and the, the appetite in society we might even be more more perverse um, in a few years. But um, I think very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, the the last thing I want to say about him that you brought up, I think, is very important. Is this idea that you know he probably thinks he's doing the right thing? I think he is influenced by his wife and family that she's a Reiki practitioner. And listen, I I used to kind of rag on him for that. I actually think it's important to have an open mind about these things. But it when it leads you down to hawking supplements and you know unproven stuff for money, that becomes difficult, right? I, like like I've had my share of mystical experiences. I know there's more than just the rational. There's a trans rational, but in many ways, he behaves pre-rationally, where it's more magical thinking and and 
trying to make a buck. He may not see it this way. Um, and, and I think that, but, and the public doesn't see it that way. And that's where it becomes, you know, very, very difficult. That's where these things can border into the very unhelpful, right? But yes. either way, I think it's very nuanced. And I actually am glad he's in the race because it's just gonna make really good conversation. And listen, there's one piece of it, right? Vinay, like you and I ought to be supporting physicians in leadership positions, but this one's a tough one. <laughs> like, I'd love to see more. I'd love to see more physician leaders, but this one's a tough one. You know, I, 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 I agree with you. Um, it's a tough one. I, and I'm curious the kind of politician he'll actually be. Um, you know, right. he, he, he's marketing himself cleverly, but will he actually stand for anything uh, if he were to assume the office? But we shall see. We shall see. Now we on to see. the variant. On to the variant. This is the talk of the town. Obviously, you know, you've probably been reciting your Greek letters ever since you were a child. But now we're on to... To O, is it? Is it O now? <laughs> Omicron. Uh, I think we skipped like we skipped Z or X Y because of you it know Chinese like Xi premiere. Xi Jinping. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, that's interesting. You know, one yeah, thing about yeah, this so, this O that I find interesting is that we decided no longer to call the variants by the region or location from which they arose because obviously that would be you know that would be um, racist, racist, pejorative towards Un, those unwoke. regions, unwoke, and yet we can call it Omicron. But the moment it's reported in South Africa, y'all getting travel banned. So isn't that really? Dude, isn't that really just the same? Everyone's like, well, it, you know where you're travel banning. It's it, dude. To me, this is a great example of how we we speak out of one side of our mouth woke talk about oh we're calling it Omicron because we want to shame Decepticons and Transformers <laughs> instead of you know the it's southern amazing. tip of Africa, yeah. and and yet then like you said the way we actually act is Biden signs a blanket travel ban against all these things. People's holiday plans have been canceled. Livelihoods are ruined. I have South African physicians emailing me practically. You can feel the tears through the page. They're like, we had all this stuff happening. Our economy was starting, going to get ready to rebound. This thing was going on. And then they do this because we had the grace to discover and report something who knows where it even originated. Right. And it's already fucking everywhere. It's everywhere. If you're finding it in one place, you know, it's already in the Bay Area, you know, like it's 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 happened. In fact, uh, I think the report yesterday suggests it's been in the United. It's been in Europe for at least a week. Um, mm. So, I mean, let's talk about these travel bans for a second. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they're bad policy. They're bad policy for a few reasons. One is that it's already everywhere by the time you institute the ban. That's one reason it's bad policy. What does that mean? It yep. means that you may lower the seed load of the new variant, but it will be a marginal change in seed load, and you'll still have to deal with all the variant you already have on your soil. And that comes at the price of the huge economic and social penalty of really ruining the lives of many people, and at least in the short term, the disruption to their lives. Yeah. The second reason yeah. it's bad policy is they never institute the travel ban the moment they say travel ban. It's always travel ban starting two days from now, three days from now. Right, what does that do? Right. That creates a rush on the airport. It creates a rush on those <laughs> flights. If you want to get people crammed together in the airport, that's the easiest thing to do. You're doing the, you're doing the dumbest thing on earth. You're actually probably increasing <laughs> transmission by doing these ridiculous bans. And I believe that's what happened in the original set of bans uh, in 2020. Um, and, 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 and I think there are many experts who have decried these travel bans. Ultimately, also, um, how, how many more years are you going to continually reintroduce travel bans? Today, it's the southern tip of Africa. What will be next? It'll be parts of Latin America. It'll be Canada. It'll be Mexico. It'll just keep moving around. And these disruptions are tremendous. And what do you accomplish in the long run? This variant is going to 
is going to if it if it is biologically meant to gain a foothold, it will gain that foothold it will. everywhere. Yes, it inevitably. will inevitably. Yeah, again, it gets gets to that thing of how much control do we really have? Like, there's only so many shithole countries we can ban travel to, right? Like, that's and that's the terminology that developed. It's it's crazy. It, it is the deepest form of uh, of non holistic thinking, and and you and know the you other thing term, is like you use that term sarcastically because that's the that's the that's the pejorative, mean spirited term that Donald Trump used. And of course, exactly you know, to be clear, w- these are really noble and honorable and great countries. All the countries of the world Dude. are. You know, they're all wonderful places. But when you treat the countries like that, you're treating them like the word that offended you when that man said it. You're treating them that way. And that, I think, is worse than the, than the label. It's worse than the naming convention. It's actually being discriminatory towards people from these places. That's what the point you're making. Right? But by the way, thank you for clarifying that because I said it and assuming people would understand I was being sarcastic, um, but many people don't. They're like, oh, he thinks they're shithole countries? No, the, the, the whole point, <laughs> listen, if we're gonna widen our circles of compassion to all humans, right, at least, then how can we, we can, we just simply cannot behave this way. Now, if there was some evidence that we would actually save a bunch of lives doing that, then that's one thing, but mm-hmm. I have yet to see that and all the reasons you gave. And, and then, and then it, di- it, di- it dives into, so travel bans seem to be totally counterproductive and reactionary and deeply discriminatory on some level, even if it's unconscious, while we speak woke language out of another part of our mouth yeah, can by we calling talk about it Omicron. That for a second? I mean, I think that yeah, you're, hitting, yeah. you're hitting something really broader than this particular instance, which is that- um, you know, of all the things that happened in 2020, one of the things that will do, I think, tremendous damage to uh, young black people is the school closure issue. It happened predominantly yeah. in uh, urban uh, left of center cities uh, where uh, large populations of uh, young black kids received their education. And I think they've been disproportionately de- deprived of in-person education, which will have lasting consequences on their lives. That action, I believe, is a racist action. That action will affect their lives for decades to come. That action is something that very few people stood up against at the time and actually protested and said anything about. What We protest words with such vigor. We protest someone who says the wrong thing, who may say South Africa variant, when they were supposed to say Omicron, who may use the wrong terminology. We forget the forest for the trees. Yes, I agree. When you use the wrong words all the time, you know, you, you, when you use the words wrong words all the time, I do think to some degree people can find that demeaning and insulting. I mean, I, I, I'm a little bit insulted with somebody, you know, I know someone for 10 years, they never say my name right, you know? I mean, I'm a little insulted. Okay? Right. But I have to always separate that the greater offense is not that they didn't say my name right all the time, it's how they treated me. And in this case, we see over and over in this ideology that you're calling woke, but I do think it's commonplace left of extreme left of center, um, it, it's this ideology that they, it, it almost seems as if they care more about the words and the visible symbols than the actual problem themselves, the actual problem itself, the actual thing that should be animating them. They have put that on the back burner while they're fighting the war about the superficiality of it. And I think that to me, is, I find it very frustrating. And I think that's what drives so many people away from so many of these causes um, is that they feel like it's a theater and not about the real issue. The real issue is, yes, the black kid in Baltimore, uh, the black kid in Los Angeles, yes, they've really suffered this last year with no in-person education. And to be honest, you're going to make them suffer more when you institute that vaccine mandate that keeps them out of school because the rates in that community are lower than in Asians and whites. It's going to be a racist policy. You don't want to talk about that. You want to talk about, you know, the, the naming of the variants? Come on. 
This, this, this is exactly it. This is the hypocrisy that people that drive people to this alt middle position. And, and it's funny, out of everything you just said, this is what those guys would pull out. He called them black kids instead of African American. Like it's all about the projection and the signaling, the deep unconscious bias is completely ignored. And like you said, with the school thing, everybody in a position of affluence or a position of whatever racial privilege it is, whether you're white, Asian, Indian, like, you know, the privileged races for whatever that means, they're, they're, they're not screaming and yelling about school closures because like you said, the people that it's affecting, the people who depend on it for lunch, the people who depend on it for structure, the single mother who, you know, that's, that's where their kid is the only rung off the ladder of poverty is education and, and they can't climb it. And they're, stu and they're stuck at home with no guidance by necessity. To bring, to bring it back to the yeah. variant issue, in the case of the variants, you've, they've forgotten the naming convention for the actual point. The actual point yeah. is yeah. that the actual point is we shouldn't discriminate against places in the world that through their own wherewithal and resources and motive, uh, they actually name the variant and give you information. You shouldn't discriminate against them with a travel ban. That's why you change the name. But now you're saying, <laughs> let's change the name and discriminate against them with the action. You've forgotten we the whole point. Both. The whole point was the name is the irrelevant factor. It was the discriminating against the place that was the problem. Discriminating against the it's people was the problem. It's crazy. It's a conscience mollifying act to name it Omicron because then you can go to sleep going, I wasn't racist and uh, then yeah. act in a completely biased way. You know, and here's the, here's the deeper thing. Like what about the vaccine apartheid component of this, right? Yeah, so let's talk about that. those guys, yeah, yeah. So here we are up in arms that, you know, we got to ban travel from the Southern part of Africa. Yeah. Did we ever really uh, push getting actual vaccines out there as a political agenda, right? The Moderna CEO was saying, hey, listen, it wasn't our decision. The, the Paul Politicians said they want to do it this way, and they want sixty percent of the doses to go to the U.S. and this and that. And I'm like, well, I don't know who's I don't know who's responsible. Everybody's going to shift blame, but the truth is, them doses didn't get there, and education was bad because a lot of South Africans are hesitant. And you know, so how about that? And yes. and then you get a variant, and you know, and of course the anti-vaxxers like the, the vaccine causes the variants, in the spite of the clear data that twenty percent vaccine penetrance in a country, and that's where the variants come from, not them from the United didn't States. Get there. Yeah, I mean, I think you don't hear you don't you don't hear about the fucking. San Francisco variant because the virus doesn't replicate here because we have high vaccine penetrance, you know? High vaccine and also people are still skittish and- High self, sphincter tone. Yeah, and, and self-isolating. Uh, we may do it for another 10 years. Who knows? I, but, but I think- When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're onto something in a couple of dimensions. One, um, uh, that uh, obviously part of this failure, global failure, you know, they always say that um, the unvaccinated people are the threat, but they always talk about it like it's the unvaccinated people here who, you know, because those are the people that we can pick on. But what about the fact that our policies have resulted in huge global tracks of unvaccinated people, old people, vulnerable <laughs> people, because of these hegemonic global policies? I think that's that's a huge fiasco. And then you talk about hesitancy. I do wonder if um, part of the reason why a lot of people globally may be hesitant is they say these companies that made the vaccine, they're getting rich. And in fact, Pfizer reports, what, 30 billion in earnings from their vaccine. Um, 
even though many of these vaccination efforts were heavily subsidized by federal actors such as the United States, um, it not I mean, Operation Warp Speed was a subsidy of their development. Uh, I wonder how it would have been received if we really made the effort to make these vaccines at cost. If we said that, you know, this vaccine is just not going to be a for-profit business, it's going to be for free. It will remove one objection globally, which is that part of your vaccine policy is the money. Uh, if you took that away, then people couldn't say that because we're not doing it for the money. Now, to some degree, people are doing it for the money. And although I do not think that the money um, is so corrupting that the first dose, you know, is, uh, is, a, is, is been influenced, I do worry that the money is so corrupting that this idea that you'll be perpetually boosted in the absence of RCTs, yeah. you know, so, so there is a place where the money may be corrupting, right? The indefinite perpetual yeah. boost. Um, maybe we need better da data there. And people wouldn't have been so gung-ho about perpetual boosting if, it, if a for-profit entity didn't stand to make a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. It, and, it, and people are, listen, I, I, ha I go back and forth about the general intelligence of the population, and this is an el a very elitist position to be like, people are dumb. But honestly, I think people are actually have a very acute bullshit detector. Yeah. And they like people who can hand foil that, either foil it, like, you know, Trump is really good at like getting around people's BS detectors, um, or they actually truly transcend it. So they're actually being honest, you know, which may also be Trump. <laughs> you know, like he's just, he'll just say, this is what I think. You know, and I think what's happening with with uh, the obfuscation in, in these big, you know, how we message about vaccines and how we actually act in the world and the actual experience on the ground of people who are marginalized for choosing, you know, at this point, they're nervous about vaccination, whatever, they're treated as you know, third-class citizens, they're ostracized. All their predictions of the hegemonic influence of government and so on, it, 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 they come true in their mind. And it just creates this, this extreme, exceeding backfire effect that then rockets someone like Dr. Oz into office, right? I, I do so, think that these are related things. Yeah, you're onto something there. Yeah, yeah. It's all, a, about, it's all a web. Let's talk about boosters. Okay. Yeah. So something interesting about this variant that I noted was the woman who has uh, publicized it, she's written an op-ed basically saying she believed the world has overreacted. You know, most of the cases are, in her experience, mild. She's not aware of very severe cases. Um, uh, you know, we still don't know a lot. I mean, I think the reality is nobody really knows uh, how transmissive this is. Nobody really knows how lethal this is. Um, people are speculating in every direction. But the moment it sort of was dropped in the news, it really exploded. I mean, the variant, uh, uh, the idea of the variant is highly, re highly re replicates very quickly in the minds of people. Uh, it exploded yeah. in the entire news space. Um, and then they had, you know, that was a big news story, the variant, the variant. And then the next news story was, we don't know anything about the variant. We don't know anything about the variant. Maybe we're overreacting the variant and they get the attention from that. And then that gets a lot of eyeballs. And then the third thing was, <laughs> even though we don't know anything about the new variant, even though uh, Moderna says, we're just going to go ahead and start developing a new vaccine because we don't know anything and we don't know if this old vaccine is going to work. The CDC went ahead and said, by the way, uh, you know, we said like, if you're 18 and you got two doses of Moderna, you could get a booster. Now we're saying you ought to get a booster. And that to uh, me, boosters for all, very interesting discussion. Your friend, Paul uh, Offit. Good for Paul. Did you see Paul Offit, Marion Gruber, and Phil Krause? The, those are the two people who resigned from the FDA because they say yep. they were under pressure from the White House. The three of them, this is you know really some esteemed players in vaccine science. They wrote an op-ed um, saying that they disagreed with universal boosters. The same day the CDC went ahead with the mandate. So have you followed this story? What are your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I did a video on it. Actually, Paul texted me and he's like, hey, you might like this piece I wrote. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And I had to actually check my internal state. I was like, is this just confirmation bias? Because I love Paul Offit and I hate what CDC is doing. And and then I, I read through it and I was like, no, these are exactly the arguments I'm thinking of, which were, were the following. What they said was, listen, universal boosters for 18 and over healthy people have several downsides. The main one being that we're wasting resources, education, and communication bandwidth on something that will not move the needle on the pandemic, which is raising neutralizing antibody levels in people who are already immune against severe disease because they've gotten the first dose. What will help is getting people the first dose who are vulnerable and then boosting the people who have multiple comorbidities over 50 or are over 65. And, and that's it. And in the setting of Omicron, they brought up an interesting idea that's been floated before, which is this idea of immune imprinting, where if you just keep exposing the immune system, because the argument for boosting in the setting of Omicron, assuming, and we'll talk about more about Omicron because it's just, it's, it, there's so much to say there, but the, the argument for boosting with our current vaccine for Omicron is that, well, we'll get this bump in neutralizing antibody. So even if Omicron has some escape from vaccine because of all the spike protein mutations, you'll just overwhelm it with such a shit ton of, of antibodies that it'll, it'll be okay. Well, there's a downside to that, which is you're continually retraining your immune system on the original Wuhan strain. And when you do get a variant that does escape, um, it, when you get that special booster that takes some months to spin up, it may have less of an effect because of the way the immune system imprints on its first exposures, multiple exposures. And I don't know, you know, again, I'm not an immunologist, so I can't dive deep into that understanding, but I will say this, that that that's valid. Like if, if Omicron really is an escape mutant, then spin up a new vaccine, but we have really no evidence. I think what you said about the r naught of the social contagion right. of the news yes, yes. being in, in, practically infinite in a, in a day, in one day, it became a super viral story more than Omicron is spreading. And then it starts, like you said, it starts to trickle out. And they're like, wait, the South Africans are saying this is pretty mild disease. Could you imagine, Vinay, if it turns out that Omicron with all its mutations became a less severe disease, more like a cold, infected 7 billion people and provided them immunity against the other cross strains and ended the pandemic? How about that as a story? Now, right. I'm not saying that's going to happen. But no, like, yeah. of course. But, but, Come but on. the media loves to speculate in one direction. They don't love to speculate in the other direction. Um, yeah, you know, I think you're hitting all these points that I think are really valid. The point I would make is that um, uh, if these two things cannot both be true, if the CDC is saying we truly don't know anything about the new variant, which is in fact what the CDC and the president said that day, but also we're 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 making the booster recommendation stronger. The answer is if if it if you're making the booster recommendation stronger without new information about the variant, you should have done it four weeks ago. Why not three weeks ago? There's no new information. Yeah. As you can see, there's no new information. So if that was the right decision, you should have done it three weeks ago. Or alternatively, why don't you shut up and wait for some new information? So, you know, you can't yeah. have it both ways. You can't say, don't panic about this. We don't know anything. But by the way, run to the store and get the booster. I actually think it's, it's I mean, I know the evidence. I know the evidence is lacking. Here's why it's lacking. We do have a randomized control trial for Pfizer boosting, and it does show a reduction in symptomatic disease. It is unable to show a reduction in hospitalizations or death because it just didn't have the power for that. And that was acknowledged at the FDA Verbeck meeting. We don't have randomized data, even press release or announced for Moderna. And what we definitely don't have is a sense of the safety. We do know from Israel that dose three Pfizer actually does have some myocarditis. It appears to be less than dose two, but it's not zero, and it appears to be above baseline levels. It is real. Of course, once you identify the safety signal, it is 
it is 100% true that additional doses of this mRNA vaccine will have some non-zero rate of myocarditis above baseline. The question is, is the benefit to a 20-year-old man bigger than that non-zero risk? And the answer is, nobody knows. They didn't know it three weeks ago. That's why they didn't say should. And they don't know it yesterday, when, or they don't know it two days ago when they made that recommendation. So this is bad regulatory science, I think. It's really dangerous. And, and Zubin, I think here's why I think it's really dangerous. And I think, I, I think Paul Offit is right. Um, and Marion Gruber is right. And Phil Krause is right. And by the way, uh, the fact that those two resigned over, over this issue, I don't know. Yeah. The, the people need to really – these people worked there for decades, decades. Yeah. This is the thing that broke their back. Uh, we need to think about that long and hard. Uh, this is why I think it's a big problem. It could be the administration is right and boosters work marvelously. And actually, the, there is a net benefit to even an 18-year-old boy who gets the booster. Could be they're right. If they're right, I think we'll have set a dangerous precedent because we took a gamble and we ended up winning the gamble without the proper evidence. And so in the future, mm. we'll be much more likely to gamble again. And there's someday, mm. you know, like any gambler, like the gambler's fallacy, you ain't going to win ever, forever. You know, and the day you lose, right. you might lose big and you're going to be more likely to bet big. But let's say they're wrong. Let's say five years from now, there's a scientist from, you know, Harvard, who publishes a study, and they say at the time of that booster recommendation, it turned out in the subsequent three months, it is 100% certain that men between the ages of 20 to 40, they suffered excess myocarditis, and they did not have any reduction in hospitalization or death. Um, if that is the answer, we will have put a nuclear bomb in the vaccine space. Who will trust the CDC f forever? Uh, right yeah. now, you think you have a, a large vocal anti-vax contingent. It can grow. I don't think people understand. It can grow. It can become huge. It can become dominating. It can become the majority. Maybe now, what is it? 5%, 10%, 20%, something in that ballpark. It could be 50%. If you screw anything up now, you have to think about, yes, the current crisis is a crisis, but is it really a crisis? I ask you, honestly, a 22-year-old healthy man, he's had two doses of Moderna. Can anyone look this man in the eye and say, you know, you're better off running and getting that booster without waiting for randomized data. I couldn't. I mean, I think that's crazy. The risk is as low as it gets in this life. I mean, you you might even be at a higher risk in the automobile on the way to get the booster than you are at the current moment. I think it's just oh. really, really crazy. I Man, absolutely. And you know what's 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 interesting about yeah, and you know Gruber and and Kraus. What's interesting about Offit is he's a character who you would expect to be hardcore thesis position on everything. You know, like Peter Hotez, right? Hardcore yeah. thesis position, like like everybody else is a COVID idiot. Offit's not that way. Offit from early in the pandemic tried to look at big picture, said, hey, kids are actually relatively safe overall here. And so if we're gonna give vaccines to kids, we better show extreme safety. He said that early on. Yes. You know, now he's kind of shifted to like, yeah, hey, let's vaccinate kids because, because what we're seeing at Chope is a lot of MISC and so on. But then now he's looking at boosters and saying, hey, this is another deal where vaccinating healthy people with a booster just doesn't seem to make sense when there are other resources you could apply to actually ending pandemic quicker. And- this is we need more of the of the synthesis position in our public people in power. So he's on FDA advisory committee. He's a yes. thought leader in the space. We need more of that. We need less of the hardcore. I'm only thesis. I'm only anti antithesis. So on. I mean, it's, I think it's what very you're challenging. About you're talking about really a hallmark of people that is independent thinking, and it's not synonymous yeah. with intelligence. I think that's a mistake no. that we always make. You know, a lot of really intelligent people are really intelligent, but they're not very independent thinkers. Um, 
what does it mean to be independent? I mean, obviously, there are many personality traits that will give you somebody like a Paul Offit. And I want to say also, Paul Offit is somebody I respect, I admire, I think he's great, but I also disagree with him substantively on a couple of things over the pandemic. You know, yeah. so I, I, I yeah. don't agree with him on everything, but I like him. I like him because he, you certainly can't always predict what he says, and that tells you a clue that he might actually be an independent thinker. Independent thinkers, they have, I think, strong intelligence, strong analytic thinking, but also a little bit in their body is willing to be defiant, willing to be unlikable. You know, if yeah. a lot of people, especially in biomedicine, especially in this profession, because as you know, in order to reach these rarefied echelons to be chair of a department, you have to always be a likable person for 30 years of your life. And sometimes yeah. when you make regulatory decisions, like to actually write an op-ed, I mean, it really takes a lot of, I don't know, it takes a lot of courage. He wrote an op-ed in a national newspaper that went against the prevailing CDC when he himself is a member of the Vaccine Advisory Committee yeah. of the FDA. Yeah. It could come in professional repercussion. He could not be invited to CDC lectures. He could not be invited to future opportunities. I mean, it's not nothing for a guy like this to do that. So that takes a little bit of courage slash defiance, the ability to say, you know, I don't care if everyone gets angry with me about this particular position. I feel a moral obligation to say what I believe. And I also think that it's such a deep personality trait, this likability issue, that some people, they won't even let their mind think about the issue critically if people feel strongly about it. For instance, I'll give you one example that I think likability is carrying the day. I mean, you know, this is something that, and I, I'll admit, I don't think, I think I'm somebody who actually has high levels of that, that willingness to be unlikable at times and defiant. Um, the issue of masking toddlers, right? Um, mm. You know, I, I wrote my article in, in The Atlantic pointing about there's no data, and there's a few people in the United Kingdom writing articles. But it, relatively, for, the, for the, 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 the stupidity of the intervention of masking a two-year-old, there are very, very few actual scientists who have written about that issue and even speak about it because they know that it is a, you know, almost sort of religious fervor among the proponents of that issue. And so if you don't have some people around who are willing to be unlikable, you can even do things as stupid as masking a two-year-old for years without any credible data in opposition to the World Health Organization, you know, and UNICEF. <laughs> I mean, you can really yeah. even get there. You know, you, there's no place you can't get. Smart people can get anywhere unless you have people like Paul Offit at the table. Exactly. And what Paul is doing is what I think a lot of doctors and scientists in private will tell you. Right? They'll say, oh yeah, Zubin, I'm, I'm so glad you're saying these things because like, you know, we're, I'm just scared to say it because I'm gonna have repercussions at, at work. I'll have repercussions, my patients will get angry. I'll get repercussions from whatever academic institution. So thank you so much for saying what you're saying. And also thank you for saying that vaccines are safe and quite effective for the indicated purposes and so on. You know, so it's kind of like, it, it's a, they're saying, can you please speak more synthesis position, right? Which means including some antithesis. It, 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 it's really frustrating to see our tribal capture that we're just so afraid to go against tribe when it's something important, like like masking a two-year-old. Some some people could argue, ah, it's not that important, so what, throw a mask on them, who cares? Let's just get through this. Or you could say, well, actually, we don't know that that's not right. harmful. Right. And and you've already, you've elicited, you know, listed out these arguments very well, beautifully done in, in a major publication like Atlantic. I mean, th this is what we need. And Offit is one of those guys, right? Now, you can look at Offit's detractors and make the contrast. So <clears throat> there's a guy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's one of the Kennedys. He's a lawyer. He's been a professional anti-vax activist for years, not a doctor, written a bunch of books, just wrote a book about Fauci. 
a lot of people emailing me, hey, what do you think of this book about Fauci? It sounds really legit. Fa Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is one of those guys who can be very likable, very persuasive. And when you see what it, what his true colors are, like, you know, I was on an email thread and somehow he was looped in and they were emailing Paul Offit and a bunch of other officials. And he wrote in there, he goes, Paul Offit is a vile, subhuman, evil liar and, you know, needs to be stopped. And I've had experiences with Paul Offit and this, and just a series of vicious ad hominems. And I was like, wow, well, now I see the nature of, because when, when Paul has been publicly asked about Robert F. Kennedy's motivations and why he's such an anti-vaxxer, Paul goes, I, I just don't know. I have no idea. I'm not in his head. <laughs> you know, it, it, we, ju we just need, I don't know. It, 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 even the discourse is so poisoned that we can't even talk about it. And Paul took a lot of crap early on for saying, you know, this, this COVID thing is probably gonna be, you know, less damaging than flu. That was his prediction in the very early days because he was just appalled at seeing schools shut down and the effect on children. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I guess it was, it's more, it's been, it's more damaging than flu, but at the, yeah. at, at, but at some ages, I, I worry that the damage from the closure is greater than the damage from the virus. But, but, but to another person yeah. who I think of in this vein is Cody Meissner, uh, chief of pediatric ID at Tufts. He's also pushed against the grain in a number of ways. Mm. Um, I think you're onto something in the sense that um, the climate, uh, every day I look, I see, you know, I mean, I don't know. It, it's almost sometimes I'm just like roll my eyes. It's so tedious because mm. there are people in both camps, the camp that, uh, you know, less restrictions, no mandates, you know, one extreme or the other extreme, you know, mandates, everything, boosters every month, you know, whatever. They're both camps. And then you see that whichever camp someone's in, um, there are, everyone is a grifter. Everyone is in, everyone is a, yeah. a sellout. Everyone is an idiot. Everyone is a vile charlatan murderer. Uh, everyone is, you know, I was like, I'm like, okay, wow. Yeah. Everyone, everyone is a murderer. Everyone, you know, they're a murderer because they want the school open, but that you're going to, you're a murderer because you want the school closed. Like, everyone is a murderer. I mean, this rhetoric is like, it's one thing when you just oh. see like anonymous Twitter accounts say it, but when it's another thing, when I see like a professor at the university of Michigan, um, you know, calling Cody Meissner, uh, you know, a threat to public health because he signed mm. the GBD, the evil GBD. And then I was like- <laughs> The Great Barrington Declaration. The yes. Great Barrington Declaration. And, and, and I will say, I didn't sign it. I didn't sign Neither it. Neither did I, it, but I don't sign anything. Yeah. yeah but, <laughs> 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 well, I don't even, even sign my taxes. Yeah, I don't even yeah. sign it. <laughs> I didn't sign it because it, it um, didn't have everything I wanted in it, but I also am adult enough to know it wasn't uh, a lethal document the document had a reasonable point of view, even if you disagree, that point of view was instead of holding all of society captive, we should do more for those who are more vulnerable and target. less yeah, and target, right? And then the John Snow memorandum, I didn't sign that either. I thought it was also rather silly. Oh, actually, this one I actually thought was maybe even more silly. I think the GBD, I thought actually made a reasonable, some reasonable general point of view at a time where the current was the other direction. John Snow had the line in it that, um, uh, uh, you know, natural immunity might not last that long and you just keep getting COVID and just get a sick, you know, you can get sick the third time, way sicker, you know, something that really sort of defied yeah. most understanding. Hysterical of, right? It, yeah, fear monger. Hyster yeah. Yes. Yes. It was like that. And the only way to stay safe is we all stay in our houses until the vaccines, come. you know, that was also, um, I didn't sign that, <laughs> but I also don't think that everyone who signed that was a murderer or, you know, um, <laughs> right. You know, Including one of the people who signed that, I think, was the is the current CDC director. She also said that masks work eighty percent, uh, which I don't think is true. <laughs> I think you know, and I, it make me it made me worry that the CDC director 
you know, it would be like, you know, if you, if you, if like a cancer doctor saying that this chemotherapy cures 80% of cancer patients when the reality is it's like closer to 10% or 0% or something in that ballpark, uh, you know, mm. you wonder about such a doctor. Uh, but, mm. um, but I certainly don't think she's a bad person. I think she's right. a little misguided on that it, issue. Good intention. Good intention, you know, and, and I, yeah, I, this is the thing, the vilification of all these guys, you know, it, it uh, you know, sp and speaking of masks, so speaking of masks, you were going to talk a little bit about the Bangladesh uh, trial. There was some controversy there. Yeah. yeah what's going so on there? I think, I think people should hang. I, 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 I want to make a few points here. First, a broader point. Yeah. Um, they've been a number of really courageous and brave people who have investigated the randomized control trials around ivermectin. And they have, you know, you and I have talked about it a few times. And um, I think our initial inclination was we were skeptical. And then we came back later and did a longer segment on it where we explained the source of that skepticism. We said we are happy to await the ongoing randomized efforts. We also said, you know, we're, we're not the kind of people who call it horse pills because that actually poisons equipoise for ongoing studies. That's not helpful either. Well, there are a couple of um, data sleuths, right. and they look through some of these older, some of these studies that have already been published with really impressive results, and they find like lots of problems, and and I think one has been retracted, yeah. and your and um, Peter Corey finds himself in the in the midst of a storm. Um, okay, I was listening to someone who did this work talk about how they are impartial, and I thought it was very interesting. Here's why: they said, "I'm an impartial arbiter of science. I just." It doesn't matter to me whether ivermectin works or doesn't work. I just want to see good quality studies. And I say, I say hats off to you. I agree with you. That's the way we ought to be. You know, it doesn't really matter to me. if it, I mean, if it works, great, actually. If it doesn't work, yeah. that's important information. But I don't personally have an interest in one outcome or the other over any other drug. You know, I, I don't know. It doesn't matter to me which is the drug that works. Um, and I want to look at the data very critically. And this person says he did that. That's why he spent so much time diving into the ivermectin data. What I note is very interesting is that it's selective. This is what he doesn't see. Like if you claim you're an impartial arbiter of science, but the only science you really dive in deep is hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Right, the tribalized science. Yeah. yeah. And the paper by Dimitri Christakis that said school closure is really bad. Well, of course, that paper had a lot of fa uh, failures in it. But they dove into that real deep and they debunked it. They found all the problems with it and they kept pushing for attraction. And then they kept saying, this isn't about the issue. It's just about being a steward of science. Okay, why are you not currently the Bangladesh RCT data <laughs> is posted online? It says cloth masks. It says cloth masks don't work. Surgical masks work. That's what the trial says. Why aren't you diving into this data? And the answer mm. is there's a there's a, ironically there's a different set of people diving into this data, and they are diving mm. into this data right now. And uh, and people have sent me some of the preliminary findings. And I think people should basically uh, put a pin in this issue. I think this issue is going to blow up in the next week or two because mm. I think they've uncovered some substantive issues with the nature of randomization, the nature of the endpoint. Is it really statistically significant? Some problems with this. Um, ben Recht has already posted a blog post where he shows that um, one of the colors of mask worked, but the other color didn't work, the same type of mask. Are we t is that possibly <laughs> true or is it possibly that the, it's a spurious finding? The other thing is the mm. actual number of events the different events, it's like 700 in each arm. There's a difference of 20 with a base rate of 700 events in each arm. And then there's issues uh -huh. about how we consent people in the denominator. And so I, I will, I'll be back for a further update on this issue when I really process all this story. But I do think that there's something here that people are pulling on a thread here. And I think it's important. And so my point, the point I want to make with this whole segment is that 
if you really are an impartial arbiter of science, yes, you should take a deep dive into the ivermectin studies, but you have to also take a deep dive into the studies that show masking work. And actually, I have a theory. Imagine the Bangladesh study authors, if they had published a press release saying our study shows masks don't work, the number of people who are currently analyzing their data set, it wouldn't just be- Would have tripled. <laughs> yeah. I would say I would say 100 times more. I'd say 100 times yeah. more people would be in that data right now. 100 times more people would be probing that data. That is, a, that is a huge structural failure in science. That is a failure where we don't even perceive it. We, the person who's investigating ivermectin, they really do believe they're impartial. They don't see what they're not investigating. They don't see the claims they're not investigating. And that's why I think, what's the solution? Um, I guess maybe I'll let you go and then I'll tell you what I think the solution is. But if you have any- <laughs> you, let, you, you, you let me go for hand. solving the problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I, no, no, no. And, and, and look, this is, this is rampant in science. And actually, if we actually had a magic wand and could actually say hey, how many of these studies are actually bullshit, full of errors, if not fraudulent, it would, it would chill the entire scientific community. It would chill the public trust in anything. Although the public seems to just go with their gut anyways, but you know, you know, for example, and, and again, just in a related news, like the, a lot of people send me this article in journal circulation. It's an abstract oh, by yes. this guy Gundry, who yes. is a cardiothoracic surgeon who's made himself famous talking about plant lectins and how they're inflammatory and selling mm. supplements to battle inflammation. Of course. Of he, course. Well, of course of, it would be a supplement. That, <laughs> that's all you need. Of course. It's not what like, is it with cardiothoracic surgeons and selling garbage to the public, Oz and Gundry? And I don't know. I don't know anything about Gundry. But so long story short, basically the abstract said, mRNA COVID vaccines dramatically increase endothelial inflammatory markers and acute coronary syndrome risk as measured by the pulse cardiac test, a warning. Okay, this got published in Circulation, the Journal of the American Heart Association, right? Who, by the way, has been telling us to eat more carbs and less fat um, for however many decades. Right, right. <laughs> how so, I mean, that think, work out I, for us? I think, well, I think there's a broader point here that, I mean, just to put one pin in one of these things is that like these major professional organizations have gotten lots of things wrong. The AHA has, I think, been notorious about uh, diet advice over the years. And if I recall, there's another organization that said, if you were at high risk of a peanut allergy, you should really avoid eating peanuts <laughs> when the right answer, <laughs> the right answer was actually the exact opposite. And this oh. is the same organization that says that two-year-old doth wear the mask. <laughs> yes, no, despite a no, WHO no, guideline. Nothing to see here. Okay, anyway, back to your point. Yes. The point is, oh, the point brilliant. is yeah. that this abstract, so my, this abstract, yes. So this abstract, this abstract, they publish, okay, it goes viral. So I get a billion emails from people like, hey, have you seen this? Is this gonna, are these mRNA vaccines gonna cause inflammation that's gonna give me a heart attack? And I looked at the abstract and of course, immediately I was like, well, actually this is, <laughs> first of all, where's the rest of the data? Second of all, there seems to be a biased position here. Then I look up Gundry and I'm like, oh, of course he thinks everything causes inflammation and it's going to kill you. And then, and then I, and then I was, I said, wait, where, I want to see the data on this. Cause they're making some really bold claims. Like there's T cell infiltration in the heart and this and that. And it turns out none of it or the abstract was actually, uh, there was an expression of concern published afterwards <laughs> by the journal circulation where they were like, actually, all those things may not be true and this is not peer reviewed. And uh, so why the fuck did you publish this garbage? Like this is basically an opinion piece from a guy who sells supplements. Why are you publishing this? Now, the truth is when I first saw the abstract, I'm like, oh, there's some biological plausibility here. When you generate inflammation from an immune response, your inflammatory markers that are measured by the pulse test are gonna go up. The question is, 
a cold would do that. You know, like there's a million things that will call, cause non-specific inflammation that could last a couple months, which is what they what they claim to find. We've seen no data, right? Right. And I so mean, I think yeah. Uh, you I, know, one thing yeah. I saw about this, a really nice tweet on this, was by uh, Professor Daryl Francis from Imperial College London, and it said something like, um, "You inject yourself with a substance." meant to stimulate an immune response and reaction, and you measure inflammation and it's elevated, is this yeah, A, duh. evidence of evidence of massive problem, or B, what you should have expected? <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 this, yeah, this is one of those things that I call, I classify into being published in the New England Journal of, duh. Like, this is just like, yeah, of course. You know? But the public doesn't know this. The public sees these medicines are gonna cause a heart attack. You know, yes. and, and actually one of the one of the lines in, in the abstract, which this was published in the journal Circulation, said, this may explain why we see increased rates of thrombosis, cardiomyopathy, and vascular events in vaccinated people. And it's like, wait, do we? Like we yeah, see cardio, we see myocarditis. Those Those things are not true. Exactly. And at a, and at a certain age, and so they also, I mean, they have, they have a lot of explaining to do if you ask me. I mean, then why is the myocarditis? <laughs> I mean, you know, it like it's the same with that idea that the reason the myocarditis is there is because we injected it in a, like a vein or venule or something, that idea. Right. And then I was like, yeah, that's, yeah. Okay. I was like, okay, so that's a hypothesis. Then, then like, why does that only happen or like preferentially happen from 12 to 30 year old men and not women yeah. and not older? And, and, you know, why, like, and why yeah. only with the second dose? And, like yeah, that right, makes no right, sense. Right, right. Is it like, <laughs> the oh, the second grow. dose is coming. Let's, let's the veins grow in that yeah, between that first grow. and Obviously, second. The first one grows the veins. They get huge. Second dose, it goes up. Then third dose, it goes down because veins get small. I mean, get out of here. Your theory. Come on. Yeah, I mean, it's like any theory. Yes, you have an idea. An idea is not a theory. Yeah. Then you say, what are all right. the pieces of data? Can my theory explain right. it? This theory falls apart with, te- with the three things. And the same with um, with this, this this inflammation. And well, well, why did they publish it? This, so you're getting to this issue that I want to come back to with my solution. Why did they publish it? They publish it because they publish a lot of garbage abstracts. All these places do. I mean, you know, the uh. cancer conferences. I mean, th- this is a business. The business is publishing yeah. garbage abstracts. You know, I really do think, and I've said this before, but Everyone jumped down my throat. This was a few years ago, back when back when jumping down your throat on Twitter was a rarity. Um, I said that I actually think um, <laughs> I actually think that um, that we do a disservice to trainees um, when we teach them to write abstracts. And it, I know it's like the coin of the realm. It's like you know you know when you want to go into cardiology, you got to do a few abstracts. But abstract is really. I don't even. I, I I'll be honest with you. The, the, these posters and abstract. This is not. This is not science, really. I mean, I really it's don't science. think so. Yeah. It's like it's like a postcard yeah. of science. It's like a the shadow on the wall of science. And I guess what I want to say is like uh, people say like, oh, we need a place to talk about work in progress. I was like, yeah, have a work in progress lecture. By the way, they're not four minutes long. They're quite long because if you really want to give someone feedback on a work in progress, they need to explain to you all the stuff they're doing. They got to get the bottom of the mm. methods. They can't give you a high level summary. And I mean- this is really just a way to get people to go to conferences and make their money so mm. that these, these organizations that aren't really that relevant can stay relevant. Um, Man, yeah. that 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 makes a lot of sense and it's a little bit chilling. And you know what the pro- the reason people jump down your throats, I think a lot of times is that you're poking into truth that triggers something that has been called in the past. Like it's very hard to get a man to believe a truth if his livelihood depends on believing the opposite. Right. And, and I think there is that, like you talk about Dr. Oz, like you're not gonna, change Dr. Oz's mind on supplements because 
his livelihood depends on believing the opposite. And so he's a he may be a good person who believes that he's doing good, but that's the conflict, the deep underlying conflict. Here's a question though, what do you think about this idea if we if we had an AI that was sufficiently robust that it could look through literature and actually do the work that these humans are doing right now, trying to figure out where are their inconsistencies, where are things not making sense, not adding up, where are there some failures here, and 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 do it on mass, everything from abstracts all the way through, shouldn't we be investing in that sort of thing if it's doable? Because that could help clean up some of the stuff, and then then it'd be on the researchers to prove that. Oh, if the if the machine flags them, they have to then go and say, oh no, here's the data and this is where you know things wrong or whatever. Actually, kind of interesting idea. Actually, it's a very interesting idea. I was I would say five years ago, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, right. But 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 I will say that I, lately there have been a few AI things that I have actually said, hmm, maybe this maybe this stupid computer. Um, actually does know some things. But I guess I see like the way I would think you would do your project. Here's how I would approach it. What you need is a set of many, many articles that you have uh, several of, or at least uh, maybe some set of them, 100, 10%, um, are, de- are, are definitely notably fraudulent, and somebody has found mm. them to be fraudulent. So somebody has done this kind of work, and they found they're fraudulent. The other, like 900, you need articles that are definitely, someone has vetted very deeply, rock solid. I actually think, if anything, the second, that, that like those, those 900 articles that are rock solid, that's going to be harder to find. Because, Harder to find, yeah. Because people don't um, things that give like at first blush they appear to be plausible. They get much less scrutiny, and um, if they're not very sensational, very few people would have done that deep dive. So they probably wouldn't have been analyzed as deeply. But let's say you're able to build mm. your set. You build your set of a thousand articles, one hundred rubbish, nine hundred rock solid, true, and then you apply AI, and then I think AI it it basically will try to predict which are rubbish and which are rock solid from all the things it can scrape from how the sentences are written to how the tables are constructed. And it can do all sorts of things. You may not even, you know, like many things, it's like a, it's a black box. You don't know what it's looking at. Um, it might mm. even find things that you don't suspect are the predictors, like people who inconsistently put spaces behind a period. Like that's a marker. Mm. That, you know, you never know, mm. you know, like, like it'll train. On diligence. Of, yeah. Yeah. It'll train on even sort of like, yeah, right. Measures of diligence rather than the data itself, but maybe you train it. Um, so my first question is somebody could do such a thing and see if the AI can be trained, and if so, how good is it at discrimination? And then you'd have to apply it to some new set of pro- articles. But I think you're onto something in, in one key respect. The task that needs to be done to police the literature is so big, you could never get people to do it. By that I mean, yeah. like every scientist with every ounce of your energy is generating the garbage papers. Like that's our that's how we get promoted. So how you right. can get a labor force big enough to vet the garbage papers? It would have to be it would have to be bigger than the labor force creating the garbage papers because vetting a paper takes a more time than creating a paper. Honestly, mm. so I think you're right that mm. AI it has to be a mechanical it has to be um, you know a, an automated method of doing it. I think you're actually onto something. There's somebody who I know um, might be interested in that, but we'll talk about that later. But I want to come back to one thing. The point I want to make. Yeah, I think your point's really good. Um, how do you actually solve the problem? Here's how I think you solve the problem. When Dimitri Christakis published his paper, and his paper said that like how many life years are going to be lost from closing schools versus opening schools, the critics pounced on that paper and they found a number of things wrong with that paper, um, which I think are fair. You know, those things were wrong with that paper. When I tweeted about that paper, I just said, "Here is a estimate." I didn't say here is a good estimate because I, I smelt I smelt some of these problems. But I said, "Here is a is a estimate. Uh, it is an estimate." Okay, but um, <laughs> here's how I think you have to approach it as a scientist. 
when you see a paper that you think is problematic, you have to step back and ask, what is the broader question this paper is tackling? And in this case, the question was tackling, like, the paper was really about, like, should we close schools or not close schools? And if you want to take a deep dive into a paper that makes a compelling case to keep schools open, you should also take a deep dive into a paper that makes a compelling case to keep schools closed. And you should apply the same scientific rigor. So similarly, if you want to um, take a deep, you know, so I'm trying to say, like, how do you avoid the, the, the idea that you can be an impartial scientist, but the topics you focus on are, by definition, not impartial and tribal. If you want to mm. take a dive into ivermectin, take a dive into Bangladesh. If you want to spend 20 right. hours on ivermectin, spend 20 hours on Bangladesh. Pick something in your right. own tribe and hold it to the same scrutiny as you would pick as if, as if Rand Paul says it. Or if, if, or, or if you're mm. in the other tribe, hold something that Bernie says to uh, 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 take a deep dive into something Rand Paul says like you would something Bernie said, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. That, in, in a way, that's also walking in somebody else's shoes because you know you're not in both tribes, you know? Like, I, I think a good thing with ivermectin would be, well, then dig into the Molnipiravir data. When, it, when it's released, right? Or, you know, something that's another therapeutic yes. that's big pharma. Yeah, it's and pharma. and just say, okay, now there's more apples to apples. And um, yeah, I think, and I think that's, and a, I that's think, actually like, if great. You, if you, if you, let's talk about remdesivir. You put remdesivir data on the scale, oh, it's it's yeah. falling apart. It's falling apart. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot yeah. there. Um, yeah, so yeah. And then, I have and, for you. go ahead. No, finish your yeah, talk. come with it. No, no, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the next thing. Here's what it says. Is Anthony Fauci the same thing as science? This is a this is a ah. Substack Substack I wrote. By the way, listeners should uh, check out my Substack at Vinayprasad MDMPH at Substack.com. <laughs> shameless plug. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Hey, well, then I'm gonna sh I'm gonna shameless plug ZDogMD.com yes. for all the greatest ZDogMD show episodes. All right. Back but to I will you, say Vinay. this: if they haven't already checked out ZDogMD, then I, then shame on them. Come on, come on. ZDogMD. Yeah. That's a, that's a household name. My Substack. If they're gonna, that's a that's a recluse. <laughs> <It's a recluse laughs> if they're gonna that. vet, if they're gonna vet one of my shows, they better vet a Doctor Oz show too. All right, that's oh. the same thing that you were just talking about. You got to actually be an equal opportunity. That's an actually mm -hmm. interesting comparison because I bet if you actually watched one of your episodes and a Doctor Oz episode, like watch you and off it, and then watch Doctor Oz talk about whatever he wants to talk about, I think he'll fall right. apart. I mean, I think it will be it will be, be slam dunk. Right. The rig the rigor comparison. will be evident. Right. Yeah. I think. It'll be, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I suspect. Um, so anyway, I guess, but like, why do I even do the Substack? Part of why I even write the Substack is it helps me get my thoughts in order for, you know, when I'm talking to you or making a video or something like that, you know, you know, it actually is kind of helpful to me. So I mostly write it for yeah. myself. Uh, so if anyone wants to check it out, but here's, here's the thing that caught my attention. You know, um, Fauci was talking, he was on face the nation last weekend and, um, he said, uh, that people who criticize him, it's just noise. You know, that's just noise. And then he says, quote, this is a direct quote. They're really criticizing science because I represent science. That's dangerous, end quote. Mm -hmm. It's not the first time he said it. It's the second time, that, to my knowledge, that he said something like, you, go, you come against me, you're coming against science. I am science. Mm -hmm. I am science, I he said. I am the Senate. Yeah, <laughs> I it's, am uh... the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah. So, yeah, Emperor guess, Fauci, yeah. The easy thing to say is that, and I suspect we'll all be in agreement here, is that no one man is science. Uh, we have to have mm. some perspective here. No one man mm. can ever be science. I mean, that's just such a crazy thing to say. It's I find it egotistical, delusional, and I think it's a cheap parlor trick. I mean, yes, he's taking a lot of heat right now, 
Um, some of that heat may be, Ill, may be not deserved. I think that's fair to say. Some of the things he's taking heat for is not deserved. Some of the things I think he should be under scrutiny for. Why? Because Dr. Fauci, although I will, I will say off the bat, respect him greatly. He's published uh, hundreds of papers that are esteemed papers. He published the Harrison's book that I treasured. Um, yeah. He's one of the most cited people in human history in science. He is a great scientist. But throughout the pandemic, he's also been a key policy maker. And that's not the same thing as being a scientist because policy is science plus values. He's made policy. And the moment you make policy, you're, 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 you're not immune from criticism. In fact, it should be demanded. You should expect it. Of course, you're going to get criticism. Even if you did everything right, you're going to get criticism. And certainly if you do something's wrong. And so in this thing, I have 10 things he did, which we can talk about, that I think are really worthy of debate. But I guess let me start by getting your take on, you know, mm. what do you think of it? I am mm. science. Oh, great. Yeah. So I want to hear your points, but I'll say this. So I'm going to actually, I'm going to take the antithesis view to your thesis uh, on one point, on one point, just, just to stimulate debate here. So what I suspect Fauci meant, and again, it's hard to get in people's heads, is, is something that I see in the academy a lot. So these scientists actually feel that people on the right say, who are often the, the you know, people attacking Fauci, that they, they are literally anti-scientific. So they're actually attacking science when they're attacking him. He's blind to the fact that he's actually talking about policy and policy is like you said, science plus values. It's actually more close to politics. And that's where he's, when he says, oh, you know, these people, I represent science. What, what I think in his mind, he's saying, I represent science and these are anti, meaning I represent I'm just a stand-in for what they see as science and they don't trust science at all. And that's not true. That's his misapprehension of reality. But that's how a lot of people in the academy feel about anybody say who's conservative, who questions you know, uh, something that, that is out there in the scientific world and, and, and referred to as the science. So that, that's what I suspect is happening, just being with a lot of people like him. That's a good point. I mean, I think I certainly think he feels it. He feels he's under fire. I'm going to give you 10 reasons why I think he should be under fire Excellent. to some degree. But I, yeah, but yeah. I think, I think he, he's forgotten the key fact, which is the key fact is he's not been playing the science game solely throughout the pandemic. He may play some science. Correct. He's played the policy game. You play the policy yep. game, you're playing a different game because what is the scientific answer on should we close schools? That's not a scientific Nobody question. Nobody knows. Right? Yeah. It is mm -hmm. a trade-off question and you need, you need people to tell you. Um, okay, here's mm -hmm. what I say. Okay. Um, <clears throat> number one. Uh, <laughs> dramatic pause. Um, in in mid-March of 2020, Fauci advocated for 15 days of hunkering down. You will remember he was the one said, we want you all to hunker down, shelter in place, 15 days to slow the spread, flatten the curve. Now, I think that was hit, that he pushed strongly for that policy recommendation. At the time, mm -hmm. I will admit I thought it was quite reasonable. I had already instructed yeah. my team of researchers that there's no reason we need to go to work every day. So I told my right. team to disband even by, I think, the end of February. I told us, you know, because I was already kind of suspicious for this might be a, sort of a tail event. Uh, this might be a bad event. Um, and what was yeah. the point of us going in there every day to sit in a cubicle? We could do it by Zoom or whatever, a phone. Um, so we, we'd already kind of split up. But, but by hunkering down, I think, it did precipitate a series of events where that became a very accepted policy solution. It wasn't just 15 yeah. days. It, it went on and on. And it was reinstituted, yep. and it led to protracted battles. And he introduced this idea, I think, learning from Wuhan, that one could do such a thing. He introduced it in the United States. 
And I think whether he's right or wrong about that call, when the history books judge him, it won't just be that call. It will be that call and its full implications, which were both that most of the places that hunkered down in those three weeks actually did not and probably would not have had much spread had they not hunkered down. The places that it was exploding mm-hmm. was New York City, obviously, and a few other regions. But most of the mm-hmm. country, the energy, the societal capital to shelter in place, we burnt it all everywhere. You know, we all used up our mm-hmm. battery right away. We all, we used up, uh, we ate all the meals on our hike, even though some of us were hiking flat for the first five hours and some of us were on the uphill. You know, we drank all our mm-hmm. water, right? You know, we all burnt that capital. Maybe what he should have said is, we're going to monitor the situation closely. And when cases are over X, your county will lock down. Like that's a, you know, maybe some more sort of responsive to data solution. Okay, that's a thought. I don't actually know the answer to this question. I think people, I think people debate it for a hundred years, whether or not that was the right call. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think that's excellent. And and it, again, it, it gets to the question of like, when he says I represent science, it's like, but but that's a policy decision. Yes. That's and entirely a policy decision. A policy that, decision. really strayed from, I think if D.A. Henderson was alive, it wouldn't have happened. If Wuhan hadn't done it, it wouldn't have happened. If Neil Ferguson hadn't yeah. looked to China, it wouldn't have happened. If Ferguson's model had actually been more accurate, it wouldn't have happened. A lot of things. Right, Number two. right. It's, yeah, by the way, it's crazy that we model anything after anything China does. They're an authoritarian, <laughs> autocratic state. <laughs> like I just, again, this is I, and again, the minute that came out of my mouth, I realized it was a biased statement against, you know, I, I, my libertarian bias shows a little, but um, it does make me scratch my head a little. Anyways, go on. You're going to get our sponsorship deals canceled. We're going to be like a Nike NBA <laughs> st- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All the sweatshop companies are going to be like, nope, nope. We were going to sponsor VPZD. They are the number five. They were the number two science podcast in yeah. the nation. Yeah. yeah. But until they had to go against China. Well, yeah, I'll why? just say that yeah. China's a beautiful place for tour. No, <laughs> I, do think, I do think China has China has serious. Uh, I mean, obviously, it is it's not. A I, listen, it's I'm a just serious problem. I'm just gonna say, shui jiao, shui jiao, ni hao. That's all the Mandarin I know, and I know. Uh, that's all that come from my wife, who's Chinese. It means go to sleep, go to sleep, and hello. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that'll that'll redeem us. Okay, but I mean, I mean yes. I'm not a political scientist expert, but I'm no fan of. No fan of Chinese policy, but okay, yes. And I yes. certainly think that the, you can't learn from what they did in Wuhan. Okay, number two, Fauci argued strongly against school reopening in April 2020. He actually said about DeSantis that reopening schools, um, Fauci said kids could get infected if Florida reopened schools. He pushed strongly against Governor DeSantis in that moment for reopening schools. And then I have a link in my post to a detailed post where they link to statement after statement after statement throughout the spring of 2020 that Fauci made that in effect kept the consensus against school reopening. And so, mm. you know, what? Mm. no matter what else, no matter what else you feel about DeSantis, that decision to reopen schools was the right decision. It was the same decision they yeah. made in Switzerland. It was the same decision yep. made in Scandinavian countries. It was the right decision. Fauci was wrong, dead wrong on that decision. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, yeah. Not so good. Not so good. But I, I represent, sci- I am yeah. science. Yeah. I am science. Continue. This is good. Keep going. <laughs> I am the Senate. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I, 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 I'm afraid this battle station will be quite operational when your patients arrive. Anyways, back to you. <laughs> Number three. He famously flip-flopped on masks. So obviously mm. we talked about this in you know in so much. But the reason I think we talk about it is, I don't know, it has literally become one of the most divisive issues. And people can blame that on all, all, all sorts of things, but you cannot deny that having a very, very prominent public spokesperson say, do not do it, 
basically think laughing at you like it was stupid. Six weeks later saying, do it. That's a big problem. Mm. I mean, that, that mm. sowed the seeds of doubt in for, for everybody. And, mm. you know, if the shoe had been on the other foot, if he had done it in the reverse order, you know, you, you never know. I mean, it, 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 no matter what, any kind of flip-flop like that, such a great flip-flop with no new data, was going to always poison the well on that issue. Um, so the story number one is he told one noble lie. I think I talked about this on a prior episode, that noble lie is- right. I knew it worked, but I tried to protect the supply. But it doesn't fully explain things because you could tell people like, look, we know masks work. Um, however, please, I beg you, give the surgical masks and N95s to the healthcare workers and you take a sock and cut the tip off the sock and put the cloth on your face. That's good enough for you. They need the good stuff. Can we all do this the right thing? You could have said that. And to be honest, that was mm. literally what they said a month later. I mean, they didn't advise people to go yeah. get N95s. They advised people to put the sock or, you know, all sorts of homemade masks yep. or, you know, and, and many companies jumped in. So he could have said that. Everyone had cloth at their house. Everyone could have tied a bandana around their mouth. There's nobody who couldn't tie a shirt around your mouth. Okay. If you believe, if you really believed it was helpful. But what I think is it was actually the opposite. The first statement was the true statement. The second statement was the noble lie. The second statement was the noble lie was we had six weeks of the Twitter zealots banging the drum that we ought to mask, even though the consensus, the public health consensus prior to that point had really been not to mask. It had been shown not to work in multiple randomized trials for influenza. And the noble lie was the second lie saying that you ought to do it. So, but either way, one way or the other, he, the dude lied. He lied one way or yeah. the other. And having lied, yeah. he made it an igniting issue. It would forever ignite people. Yeah. Yeah. Number four. We talked about that one so much before. Okay. Number four. Fauci. Oh, I have a, you know, he opposed the one dose initial strategy. So there were two prevailing schools of thought when the vaccine first was available, but in short supply, give one dose to more adults or give two doses per the schedule to fewer adults. And Fauci pushed strongly for the two dose strategy. What that did was fewer people got one dose. That's one. Two, we learned later that delaying the second dose is actually better. That actually would have been better. Um, and three, the UK did the right thing and that they had, um, uh, they, they chose the opposite. And then the final thing is that many, many studies have suggested that uh, one dose would have saved more lives. So he screwed so up. So once again, once again, not science, but policy yeah. is what he represents. So he should have said, they hate me because I represent policy decisions they disagree with. Instead, he said, I represent science. That's a fucked up thing. Yeah, they hate like, me because I represent yeah. policy decisions and I, I'm still not done with him. And, and these are decisions where several of them, he's really gotten wrong. He got the school reopening wrong. Keep going. Okay, number five. Keep going. <laughs> and tell me if I'm boring you. We can, we can go to different times. No, I'm excited. I'm getting angry. That's the problem. You know, I'm, I'm, my bias is being is being fed here. Keep going. That's how I do it because I build a yeah. case. Okay, number five. <laughs> Fauci admitted, you know, the famous thing. We've talked about this before. He admitted to Don McNeil, the herd immunity threshold. Don McNeil asked him, you said 60%, 65%, 70%, 75%, 80%, 85%. Why do you keep changing it? What new information do you have? And he said, oh, I look at the poll numbers and it looks like they're willing to take the vax. So I crank it up a few points. That's what he said to Don oh, McNeil. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. Come yeah. on. The yeah, fact that, I mean, I don't yeah. know what's worse, that you're doing it or that you're telling people you're doing that. I mean, <laughs> at least uh, if you steal from the cash register, keep it quiet. I mean, let me catch you doing it. You know, <laughs> don't tell me you steal it from the cash register. Um, okay. Um, and now, you know, about a month ago, the CDC has removed the goal of herd immunity entirely. They finally accepted it's endemic virus. We're all going to be exposed. So herd immunity has gone. It doth gone. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Number six, Fauci, he was part of the pressure on the FDA to authorize boosters. He went on the media circuit. Prior to data, he said, we have to have boosters. He joined the president with that September, whatever, 20th deadline. And that directly led to Gruber and Krauss resigning from the FDA. 
Gruber, Krauss, and now Offit have written an op-ed critical of his view. So I guess I would say, I do think that this will be in re- this will be a it, it's going to be the bad it's going to be a ba- it is a bad decision no matter what happens they might get it mm-hmm. right in which case I think they'll have one problem on their hands which is um, setting a precedent for low regulatory standards if they get it wrong mm-hmm. they'll have the greatest problem on their hands which is they have destroyed vaccine um, acceptance in this country for a generation yeah. but I think he was yeah. wrong yeah. totally wrong bad policy um, number seven he supported vaccine mandates. Um, I think the vaccine mandate is, we're still waiting on the final jury, but uh, it's definitely clear in many places, it's increased the fraction of people who get vaccine. It's also displaced some people from the workforce. And I think there are a lot of places right now that it's really, they're going to, they're going to face tough decisions. If you really enforce Mm -hmm. this, you're going to push a lot of healthcare workers out and, and the negative consequences are not solely in healthcare. It's the people you displace from healthcare. It's how you change the vote. As I talked about, you know, we talked about in the prior episode. Um, Yep. Number eight, Doctor Doctor Oz as Pennsylvania yes. senator. I am the Senate. Yes, exactly. Doctor Oz is Pennsylvania <laughs> senator. I think there that you were, and, and 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 maybe something beyond Doctor Oz that I dare not think. Doctor Doctor Emperor Oz. Emperor, <laughs> <laughs> Emperor Oz. Yeah. Uh. Guess who found himself pushing for travel bans for Omicron? Guess who found himself pushing for it? Fauci. Who? Fauci pushed for travel oh, for Omicron. A of decision which, did. quote, many other experts said would be unhelpful. Number nine. Yeah. Number nine was when I just threw in there. I don't know. It just says this. We don't have to talk about it. It says, Fauci might have funded laboratory research in Wuhan that resulted in genetic manipulation of a coronavirus that leaked and triggered the global pandemic. Opening, open, open. Yeah, there's no like a triggering bias there, but I, I like it. But yeah, no. Yeah. But I, I don't we'll know leave that answer. one off. We'll leave. Yeah. I mean, history, yeah, I don't know I mean, the these, answer. This is not for me to. This is just for history to judge. Number yeah, ten. Yeah, because we just don't know. Yeah. Fauci says that fewer than ten thousand cases a day are needed to achieve normality, although that number appears to be pulled directly from his from anus. his anus. Yeah, yeah, from his, anus. yeah uh, his royal scientific anus is, is like my anus is science, <laughs> and um, in yeah. there are all the magic numbers. Yes, ten thousand a day. <laughs> right. Obviously, that's the number. I mean. I think that's also hubris, the fact that, I mean, it's a political choice. It's not a real choice. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he could say that. I, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah I mean, th- th- this, is the, this is what I'm getting from all this. Okay, what he said about I represent science, that's just bullshit. What he should have done from the beginning is just been honest and transparent. It's just saying, tell the public, hey, here's the deal. Here's what I'm struggling with, guys. Like, you know, the mask thing, here's what's really going on. Or, hey, the thing about herd immunity, listen, I, I don't know if it's really a thing, but the more people that get vaccinated, the closer we'll get to the ideal of herd immunity. Maybe we should try that. These things look pretty safe. You know, let, let's do that. Let's just be honest, man. Like, it, 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 that's the problem with anybody in government or in policy is they feel the need to manipulate the public for what they think is good intent, but it, it never pans out well because the public's BS meter is actually pretty high. And then someone like you, who's actually smart, will go through and go, here's 10 reasons he, he fucked up. Right, because he wasn't honest. If he was honest about each of those things and the uncertainty involved, it would have been a different conversation we're having even right now. I agree with you. I think that um, I mean the few the core errors were. I mean, I don't know. One, I do actually curious about reading Scott Atlas's book. I think it has a lot of revelations about what goes on in this process. But I guess I would say that as much as I admire and respect him as a scientist, I do think. To some degree, he might be a little bit over his skis when it comes to policy. And I hate to say that. If that's, if that I mean, that sounds a little crazy. Mm. But what do I mean by policy? Policy is a different beast. I, I really think it's a different beast than science. 
And I do think that um, independent thinking is critical. Thinking about more than one domain is critical. Being a little bit defined is critical. Um, all these things are critical. I guess I would say that Fauci, I can almost always predict what he's going to say. That's not good in my mind. I do think mm. he's he's too old. He's done it too long. Um, I think that's a problem. I do worry mm. that um, he doesn't realize that, like, as much as I am not a fan of the senators who have attacked or who have criticized him, the fact that he's being criticized by politicians is it's kind of his job. Like, it's going to happen if you're going to run a pandemic policy as a civil servant. You know, you're going to get criticized by politicians. You can't be angry about that. You can't say, "I am science." I mean, I, I, as if you you're 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 Mario with the you just jumped on a star. Um, you know, you're somehow <laughs> invulnerable to criticism. You made a lot of big calls. Um, you and I, we we've done some podcasts. We've written some op eds. Uh, you know, did we have influence? Some small influence, yes, perhaps. Uh, did we have? What's the difference in influence between us and him? I think it's well, the difference exponentially. In, yeah, it's yeah. log fold risk. You know, it's the difference in risk for a five year old versus an eighty five year old. That's literally the difference in our <laughs> influence, right? It's not ten right. thousand time different influence. And so, you know, people want to criticize us. I think that's fine. If if you could actually actually say what I said correctly, you have to work on that. <laughs> you're gonna have to yeah. you're gonna have to work on your paraphrasing skills. But what he has done is is massive implications for global policy. Um, and I, I don't know what to think. I mean, he's going to be judged. I, like all that you said, that's all fine and dandy. The truth is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on one thing that you did. You were talking about Fauci, and then you made a Mario joke, and I'm gonna say that's racist against Italians because Fauci, <laughs> I, I believe, think, is Italian. I didn't even you think know? that. I mean, I what, what you, you just that. think? You think all Italians walk around going, "It's a me, a Fauci," like, <laughs> and then jump on a star? Like, I then I listen. I didn't even you're, you're asserting that. brown privilege here. This <laughs> is this is. Uh, <laughs> When I hear his voice, I, I, I didn't even know. I uh, actually, I think Brooke, when I hear his voice, I think Brooklyn. Is he? I guess Brooklyn. He's, yeah. he's Italian. Anthony, I don't know. I don't know if he's Anthony. Italian. I, I made that up. That was racist of me to just assume that Fauci is an Italian name. But I, I, I'm just you know. And, and is it documented <laughs> that Mario was Italian? Of course, Mario and Luigi. There's no. There's no getting around that. It's, Mario it's, was he Italian. was Japanese. He was technically Japanese, yeah. but of Italian ancestry. And uh, you know, there was actually a Saturday Night Live skit where they. they it was like somebody took the stand to argue that the whole Mario Luigi thing was totally racist and it was an Italian, it was like Mario and he's like, yeah, they're totally racist. And and, it, and then he went through all these Italian stereotypes. It's actually really funny if that's, you get a chance to keep it on YouTube. I mean, that's a great example of the thing we were talking about a few, few topics back, which is that like, yeah, you, one can imagine a 30 minute discussion about the racial implications of Mario Luigi while simultaneously right. not doing anything about the current suffering of anybody of any race, you know, like you, while you don't do anything that actually make anyone's life better. And I do worry, I will say my side thing that I worry about academics is that like, um, yes, it is important to combat uh, inequality within the academy. But I think we in the academy, we talk about inequalities within the academy so much. We have forgotten the inequalities like in the world. From pre-K yeah. to kindergarten to childhood nutrition to pregnant women to like what's life like for many people who never ever even get to the academy. What about that? Mm. You know, just, mm. to, just mm. which which by the way substance. is is a large piece of the substance of why there's inequality in the academy is that right. the world yes. that feeds the academy is fucking broken and nobody's broken. fixing that. So, you know, so then in the academy we're like, well, why is it mostly white men? I was like, well, you know, look at the world here. I guess, <laughs> you know, you we know, perpetuate yeah. policies that continue to hurt 
others. That's what broke me about the schools. You know, it really broke me. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It still yeah. breaks me. You know, uh, did you see these um, these these brain doctors on no, these <laughs> these geniuses on Twitter? The moment they heard this new variant, um, you know, the, many there were there were calls to suspend school. Some of the people said that. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? You, you don't even have any information. I did a whole piece on this. I'm like, we don't know shit about this, but here's some possibility. Here's how you think about it. Come on, you guys. But you know, Twitter, I think we keep conflating Twitter with reality. It's like kind of a fantasy land, but it, it is an expression of, I think, our culture. And that's important. That's where it's important because you can look at it and go, oh, the culture's diseased. Like, look at this. I guess you know, I wish is, it, I wish it were five years ago. It was and it, it was a fake reality, but it does bleed into real reality in this modern world. Oh, I'll give, that's I'll, true. I'll that's give you true. one example, and here I'm going to disguise it a little bit because I feel bad if I if anyone can identify. Yeah, you know, sure, sure, on this sure. One person. Um, okay, there are some people who are in epidemiology and infectious disease science who are frequently quoted by prominent publications for their ideas around healthcare policy. And as much as I love epidemiologists, and in fact consider myself one. I don't know if anyone else will agree, but I am in the department and I consider myself an epidemiologist as the methods <laughs> I use. Um, epidemiologists, they also don't have a stranglehold on what does it mean to be, pol what does it mean to do policy? And so somebody posted a very long thread about somebody who is frequently quoted in the news. And the thread said, every time you quote this expert, you should acknowledge that they're suffering from a serious anxiety disorder. And in a series oh my of, God. in a series of screen captures, they have shown this person said that, you know, they spent one hour cleaning something in their house that let's just say you or I would spend one second cleaning. It spent, they spent an hour mm. cleaning it. They person mm. complained about hearing loud noises in their neighborhood. And I don't want to say the noise, that might even reveal who they are, but it was something that like, you know, the kind of thing that you or I would say, you know, just move on with our day. This person acknowledged right. that they hadn't seen or, or, or touched their, uh, their loved ones, some close loved ones it, since prior to the pandemic, in, not since two years ago. Um, mm. And a number of other sort of admissions, including an admission that this person was actually seeking uh, mental health care, which of course we support wholeheartedly for this disorder. Um, but mm. the challenge in my mind isn't that, you know, the problem isn't that this person is honest about the mental health problem. That's not the issue. The issue is that if you yourself are suffering from an anxiety disorder, are you the right person to... Uh, weigh risk and benefit on public policy and personal health decisions for millions of people in the public forum of the newspaper. And if you are going to do that, should the newspaper readers at least know that you're suffering from an anxiety disorder? I think those are some real questions mm. we got to ask. Wow. Man, that is a real complicated and nuanced issue here because there's so much, right? Like instinctively you want to avoid it because you don't want to stigmatize mental health. And then instinctively you want to avoid it because you're concerned that, you know, just because someone has an anxiety disorder doesn't mean they can't objectively comment on the world because then you're again, stigmatizing this idea. But then at the same time, the, the valid point, which is you're taking, at, you're giving advice on policy that directly relates to the consequences of said mental health disorder an anxiety disorder where you're avoiding contact and you have you know hypercleanliness or OCD or whatever the components of it are, right? And it again, it, it kind of it boils down to this idea that Twitter in many ways and 
our, our kind of media landscape has been an expression of human foibles, of human mental illness, of personality disorders, amplified by the kind of weaponization of the dopaminergic pathways that social media accomplishes. And, and so getting reward for showing really dysfunctional and polarizing behavior. But yeah, there's a lot in there, man. I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> you know, it's so, it's That's so interesting really messy. Because like, um, <clears throat> if you break your hand, you can still go to, and you could still probably do a hospitalist shift with a broken left hand. Right. But Definitely. what you can't do is you can't do brain surgery until your hand heals. We agree. Right. So, right. so uh, having some uh, um, real physical or medical problem can prevent you from doing some things and not others. Similarly, I think mm. if you have an anxiety disorder, I think you can still objectively think about evidence and science, but the problem is that one particular act uh, of weighing risk-benefit for policy decisions, I think maybe you're precluded in the same way the brain surgeon is precluded when you have a broken uh, hand. What do you, think? Uh, you have to kind of recuse yourself from the that discussion. That particular thing, right. Because right. Now, you, yeah. Yeah. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I, Cause, I'm cause, just gonna, yeah, what do you, what do you think of well, that argument what, that there's some things what, you recuse yourself? Yeah, you know, I think what, I think that's a very good argument where I think it becomes interesting in this space is the very nature of the disorder leads the person to want to publicly speak about it and be an authority on it as a way of manifesting the disorder or a sense of control or a sense of they actually believe this so deeply because of the disorder that they will wanna talk about it. And so it becomes difficult to how do you adjudicate and police that, you know, that, that becomes, it's almost like the impaired physician thing. Like, how do you know the guy's not drinking or using drugs if you don't test and you don't have some protocols in place? It's very hard to know. It's really interesting. I mean, I really, I feel like there has to be a way <laughs> to walk the line between right. not stigmatizing things, but also making sure decisions are made from a good place. <laughs> um, and, uh, right, right, and with, right, with all right. The faculties available. And I think right. uh, yeah, the pendulum maybe. How do you do it? Uh, How do you do it? Swinging, yeah, swinging too much, too much. I think too much, uh, too much to the <laughs> pathological. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I agree. Um, well, we covered all the topics. <laughs> what else is there? What else is there? Man, we, uh, we ended with a good one too. That's a whole, that's a whole episode, you know, and you could get a psychiatrist in there. You could talk about the, the, the issues around like, um, for example, even just disclosing you have a mental illness can end up on your medical license or during board application, you know, renewal stuff and privileges and how we've kind of managed that. But yet- you do need to manage it in some way because of all the reasons you brought up. Like this is, that's a true alt middle discussion point because there's, there's some a, truth on all sides. Yeah. I'm also struck by, and I don't have a good finger on this, but what is the line between things we hold people culpable for and things we don't hold them culpable for? So let me give you some examples. Um, maybe 15 years ago when you and I trained, and I'm not saying this is good. I'm just, I'm just gonna, this is just sort of a description of what has happened and it's up to others to insert that moral language of what's good, what's bad, okay. But 15 years ago, if you, uh, Zubin, was a, 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 a resident and you woke up one day and you just felt really blue, you're just really blue, we all have those days, and you just wanted to lay in bed and um, not go to work, I mean, you would be seriously penalized in your training program. I mean- Oh yeah. Yeah. And you couldn't take more than a day off. Okay. Correct. Um, so in other words, you were culpable for that. In other words, no matter how you felt emotionally, get your ass to work and do your work. That was the, that was the attitude. Right. Okay. 
Right. Now, I think the culture is different in the sense that if somebody wakes up feeling blue um, and they they call in sick, uh, and if the person on the other end says that's not a good reason to come in, that person is called is actually you know the the person. Yeah. Okay. But but it's it's okay yeah. now. So in other words, so we have taken that sort of that feeling of melancholy, and maybe you had depression, maybe you didn't. I don't know. You know, depression is of course some arbitrary line in the sand for these kinds of emotional states. Um, uh, maybe you had it MDE, maybe you didn't. But we have said that now a person who has those feelings, they're not really culpable for it in the sense that they're not going to be punished at work for not coming in if they're feeling that way. So we have sort of normalized mm. those feelings in the sense that we won't punish you for that. Um, mm. But there are other things we punish people for very severely, um, using the wrong choice, the wrong word in the wrong setting. Even if somebody mm. was, I don't know, they, their parents are immigrants or they themselves are immigrants and they're not familiar with that word construction, um, um, showing a video that is considered offensive. I saw some professor at Michigan showed a video uh, from the 1960s, like an actual uh, a major movie that now is considered offensive. And that person, his you know his livelihood is he's held culpable. Um, mm. But to some degree, aren't these all just states of the brain? Like the words you <laughs> they use, they all are. They all are right. The way you feel, your emotional state, which is now you're not culpable for. The words you use, which is kind of how you were raised and who taught you to talk, and the things you consider offensive or inoffensive, these are all just states of mind. Um, you may not be as educated or woke on some of them as others, um, but some things are entirely removed from the woke conversation because you know it, it, uh, now there's infinite forgiveness for mental health issues such as anxiety, depression. So what is the philosophical distinction? Um, why is one entirely forgivable uh, and one entirely damnable? Where is the line? Who sets the line? Uh, you know. This is a beautiful philosophical discussion that gets to the heart of free will, agency, conditioning, all these questions that if you're really honest, if you're brutally honest, you dig into free will and you realize, man, that's not a thing, not the way we think it is. And so how culpable are we? Well, to an extent, you could argue that these societal expectations and culpabilities and holding people responsible actually shapes the conditioning in a way. So it actually molds behavior of this robotic entity that is us, that's on, on autopilot, that, that you know, if you hold people culpable for waking up feeling depressed and not coming to work and they have to come to work, they figure out a way to suck it the fuck up and come to work and change their mood or ignore their mood or stop listening to the cognitive distortions and thought-based distortions that are feeding the mood to stop stewing in their juices and get the fuck to work. You could do that, right? With a societal expectation, or you could do something different and say, no, actually we need to respect that this happened through no choice of the persons. They have a day where they're gonna be less productive, let them stay at home, find someone to replace them. So these again, come to policy decisions of how you're engineering human behavior and systems behavior. And you know, you can throw issues of morality in there. What is it to be good? And what is it to, to value human autonomy and not value human autonomy? And yeah, it's a whole deep, fucking discussion and I don't have the I don't have the answers. I happen to think free will is a complete illusion, but I don't act that way in the world because it would be a mess. I think you're you're very uh even though you don't have the answers, you're hitting on something that I think is a core truth here, which is that these rules, tacit and implicit rules of society, are rules we respond to and shape our behavior. And so that yes. rule that no matter how you feel how melancholy you need to get your ass to work, which is changed into if you feel melancholy don't come to work. Um, there are pros and cons to that rule. On the one hand, I think it's allowed a lot of people who struggled to get through the training 
Um, uh, but in the old way, I think some people might have learned the sort of cognitive behavioral therapy ways to change your mood. And, and I think there are such ways, right? Uh, um, CBT sort of teaches you methods to try to improve your mood. Yep. But at the price yep. of throwing some people out of the profession, maybe. Um, right. But, uh, the rules around culpability of what you say and what you think, um, those rules are extremely draconian, much more draconian than they were before. Um, the wrong word choice can get somebody fired. Um, whereas 15 years ago, you know, it might get an eye roll. Or, you know, just somebody say, hey, come on, buddy, you know, or something like that, but it wouldn't get him fired. Um, that has changed um, the, the cultural norms around how comfortable you are talking aloud and thinking aloud, um, you know, this kind of thing that we're doing right now. Um, and I think people are much less reluctant, are much more reluctant to do that. Um, how many times do you meet someone now before they even feel like you're a safe person to talk to? Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I yeah. think changing the norm. And so I guess what I want to say is that... Um, very likely there is no golden right answer, but I do think maybe we should um, uh, be a little bit more tolerant of the person who misspeaks. And maybe we should also, maybe also think that there, you know, sometimes when you're feeling a little blue, you should go to work a little bit. Maybe the pen, you know, there's a little adjustment on this thermostat that needs to be done. And uh, I think the problem is that too many people have a religious fervor where when it comes to they know exactly what's the right word choice and they know yeah. exactly that you could take two years off work and you should keep your job if you feel melancholy. You know, like I think there can be extremes yeah. in both directions, right? Yeah, it gets back again. It's a good way to wrap up everything. This synthesis, antithesis, uh, thesis position. People will take the thesis or they take the antithesis, but then nobody is really looking at the synthesis except for I think the average Joe who's like, wait, this doesn't feel right. This feels extreme in some way and it feels emotionally okay. Like, oh yeah, I'm angry about people taking mental health days. I'm gonna get pissed and say they should just shut the fuck up and come to work. Or man, as someone who suffers with depression, this would have saved me, you know, it would have saved suicides, it would have done this, that. I feel strongly in this other way. But the synthesis is something in between. It's something like, yeah, there's some truth, but partiality in all of this. So let's figure out a policy that benefits the most people with the least harm. And let's talk about it without any censorship of how you can speak. If you if you speak like an asshole and like a racist, believe me, you're gonna get the consequences of that in people's response and behavior. Outside of wokeness, outside of all that language policing, people will just be like, yeah, this is not somebody I wanna hang out with or you know, whatever. But but this artificial artifice of speech police, this is a way of making ourselves feel better while not addressing the fundamental problem. It's a, it's a delusional extreme, I think, of what is a good multicultural pluralism phase. It's now showing its shadow side and we need to evolve to the next phase of integral, um, you know, kind of alt middle kind of state where we can kind of transcend and include multiculturalism in that. But but right now we're in this very awkward and painful woke phase. That's well put. You know, I think uh, my closing thoughts are one, if you like this podcast, go go hit those stars, like us, leave a comment. It will help get the word out. Two, I think much of what we're talking about are topical issues in medicine. This aspires to be a news show. And so if you get ideas and suggestions for things we should talk about, email us at the show. It's uh, vpzdpodcast at gmail.com. Is that right? Do I have that right? I think that. that's, if, if yes, I think it's right. vpzdpodcast at gmail.com. That's it. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. And so, if you have any problems <laughs> with that, you can just go to either of our websites and hit us through our contact forms, I think, and uh, it, we'll send it to each other. And uh, it was a good discussion. 
I feel uh, feel much better having had it than before. So thanks so much for chatting. Man, that was a, that was a lot of fun. I, I feel smarter and uh, more unbalanced and ready to just go <laughs> postal on something. So it's great. Let's do this. Uh, it's so much just so much fun. Vinay. I lowered Until, my anxiety. Uh, we, and, <laughs> yeah, excellent. You raised mine. Like mm-hmm. my blood pressure is like 400 over palp. I don't know what palp <laughs> means, but I, I heard it on uh, ER once back in the 90s. All yeah. right, guys. Um, we love y'all. Uh, share the show. Do all the things. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs>